0: Then, in our Bibles this evening, congregation, we would invite you to turn to Acts chapter 1. We'll be reading the first 11 verses, focusing especially upon verses 9, 10, and 11 as our text this evening. As we turn to Acts 1 in your Pew Bible, you can find that on page 1252. We remind ourselves that the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write a two part book, you might say. So, the Gospel, according to Luke, records all that Jesus began to do uh, during His earthly ministry here on earth, including, of course, the steps of His humiliation. So, it records His incarnation, His sufferings, His death, His burial. And also then it begins to record uh, the steps of exaltation with the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Acts, you might say, is part two uh, of Luke's account, recording the things that Jesus continues to do uh, as the mediator Uh, from his ascended position in heaven. And so we read together this evening from Acts 1, verses 1 through 11. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Thus far our reading from the word of God. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to begin by identifying and sharing with you an observation, an observation that becomes a concern. So, you might say a concerned observation of my own spiritual life, but also of the corporate spiritual life of the church at large. The concerning observation is this, that many, many times in the Christian life, and by extension, within the Christian church, we live in fear. Now, I'm not referring to that godly fear, that what theologians often call a filial fear, a holy sense of awe and reverence before the majesty of the one only triune God. I'm speaking about an unhealthy fear, a fear that the disciples often had, A fear that they expressed when the boat on the Sea of Galilee in which they were residing began to experience the storm, the wind, and the waves. And they cried out to their master, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? That type of unsettled fear. From time to time you'll hear it expressed this way. Maybe you've even said it yourself or thought it within your mind. I don't know how we're going to live 10 years from now, 30 years from now, 50 years from now. I don't know how we're going to live. I mean, look at the moral, or we might say the immorality, that is characterizing our land. Look at the unrest that highlights all of the news reports. And look at the growing ungodly regimes of international powers. And then you might also turn to the news, and you hear report after report after report, and I can't even hardly keep up with it. Uh, this afternoon, the newest report that I came across is, is now there's going to be a global shortage of diesel exhaust fluid. And so the pundits or the experts, I'm not sure who they are or what they are, they say that some higher powers are going to bring the entire global economy to a screeching halt by just simply having a monopoly of the urea necessary to make diesel exhaust fluid. How shall we then live? Nation rising against nation, kingdom rising against kingdom, immorality growing and increasing, and now even the trucking industry shut down because one person apparently has a monopoly on all the urea in the world well we know by faith how we shall live by faith that all of these circumstances and all of these events and all of these minute and also major details are underneath the sovereign authority of our risen and ascended lord jesus christ And so, to comfort our hearts and to encourage our hearts, and also to bring us to a renewed appreciation for the glory of our ascended Jesus Christ, Uh, allow your attention to be directed this evening to a simple theme of an ascended Jesus. And as we look at this theme together, we'll notice the when of an ascended Jesus, and then the what of an ascended Jesus, and then, thirdly, the why of an ascended Jesus. So, an ascended Jesus the when, the what, and the why. So first of all, when did Jesus Christ ascend? The Bible is clear. Luke takes great pains, being a man of detail, but of course also being inspired by the Holy Spirit. And you'll notice that the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ took place after the completion, at least the completion of the steps of His redemptive work, which we call His humiliation. And the theologians of the Christian church for hundreds of years uh, have looked upon the testimony of the Holy Scriptures, uh, and they have put together uh, steps, or, or states as we call it, states in which the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished His work. And it, it does all of us well if we are going to be a mature Christian congregation, Not just that we can boast in our theological knowledge, but that we can come to a level of maturity to understand the states or the steps of Christ's humiliation and His exaltation. And so as the the seasons come and as they go in the life of the Christian calendar, so to speak, uh, we properly reflect at the occasion of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ of what that first step of His humiliation was that underneath the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit upon the womb of the Virgin Mary, the eternal Son of God, fully God, assumed a very real human nature unto himself, body and soul, like unto us in all points with the exception of sin. And we believe this with the certainty of faith based upon the testimony of the Word of God. And we believe that all of his life, that is the life of Jesus Christ, his approximately 33 years were lived underneath intense suffering that gradually intensified as it made its way to those dark hours in the Garden of Gethsemane, Uh, when he sweat out great drops of blood, and when he prayed, Father, if there is any way, let the cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. We follow him as we follow the pages of Holy Scripture to the cross, in which he cries out, it is finished. Uh, And we then also reflect by faith upon the reality of his burial within a tomb as he sanctifies the grave, as he accomplishes the victory over sin and over death. And we rejoice on Easter morning as we come uh, with a renewed sense of eagerness and expectation to contemplate a risen Jesus Christ uh, that He, by His divine nature, unifies and glorifies His human nature, body, and soul, making an open display of the powers of darkness, showing that there has been the one and forever satisfaction for sin. But congregation, we, we dare not stop there. We dare not leave the garden after the morning of the resurrection and say, well, now we're done with that. Because, of course, Holy Scripture continues to describe the steps of the Lord Jesus Christ's exaltation as He continues the accomplishment of His redemptive work, and so our Lord Jesus Christ ascends into heaven and takes His proper seat at the right hand of the Father, a figurative statement uh, that indicates that He receives the full exercise of all authority in heaven and on earth. And it's to that occasion that we come this evening. So, the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is seen in verse 3, takes place after uh, the initial steps of His humiliation and exaltation have been accomplished. And so, you'll notice, to whom He also presented Himself alive, there's the resurrection. After His suffering, which also would include, of course, His death, by many infallible proofs, witnessing and testifying. But notice that the ascension also takes place after the Lord Jesus Christ's work of instruction. It's helpful, and again, we don't emphasize these things just so that we could do very well on a theological quiz or test, but it's helpful for us to think about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and first to understand His person. In His person, He has two natures, a divine nature, He's fully God, co-equal, co-eternal, and co-essential with the Father and the Spirit. He also, in the fullness of time, became very man, so he has a fully human nature, two natures, one person. And then to understand his work, we talk about the states or the steps of humiliation and exaltation, but we also talk about the offices of Christ, the office of prophet and of priest and of king, And in his office of prophet, he takes the things of God and communicates those things of God to men. And you see that he's engaged in verse 9 in his prophetic office. Now, when he had spoken these things, well, what things? He's giving instruction, as you can see in verse 7 and 8, about something of the timing of the kingdom of God and something of the agency of the power of the kingdom of God. And this was necessary instruction because the disciples, and this ought to be humbling to us, but also encouraging to us, even at this point the disciples do not fully understand the nature of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the nature of the kingdom of heaven. They still have these remaining tendencies to think of an earthly kingdom, to think of a political kingdom, to think of a kingdom in the terms of military strength and of power. Uh, And no doubt they had been programmed over the years that they had spent just living in Judean culture of anticipating that the Messiah would establish a political kingdom. Now, Jesus Christ had been very clear when He said that His kingdom was not of this world, that his kingdom is of a spiritual nature, and it's absolutely all-encompassing. But it's of a spiritual nature. And he continues to give instruction to the disciples, we might say, even at this late hour, concerning the nature of the kingdom of God. So when they ask in verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They, they reveal that so often we are concerned about time. We're so often concerned about, when is this all going to fall in place? Show us the timeline. Give us a a full understanding of eschatology. Give us all of the the dates and the the details so that we can step back and we can see how it all fits together. But notice what Christ says in verse 7. It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in His own authority. I'm not sure which one of my parents told me this the most, but there were times in which my parents would say the equivalent of you're on a need-to-know basis. I've used that with my own children sometimes. And parents and children, you also know Little kids and older kids can bombard you with questions. When, 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 where, 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 why, why, why? And at times a parent might say, well, you're on a need-to-know basis. I'll tell you what you need to know when you need to know it. Basically, that's what Jesus Christ is telling the disciples. Don't worry about times. Don't worry about days and months and years. Just concern yourself with what I have called you to do, to be witnesses unto me. So often, we are so busy trying to peer into the details that we forget the responsibilities of our duties. So let us not become overly curious about times and dates and seasons and details to the extent that we lose the motivation or the focus to be about our Father's business and our Savior's business. We know what our responsibility is to do this evening and tomorrow and the day after that. It's once said of Martin Luther that someone asked him what he would do if he knew the Lord Jesus Christ was going to come back tomorrow, and I don't think that Martin Luther was an environmentalist in today's sense of the word, but he said that he would plant a tree. Does that strike you as something that would be foolish to do? What if you knew the Lord was going to come back on Saturday? Would you still go about the calling that you have tomorrow? It's not for us to know times and dates and seasons. It's for us to be Engaged wholeheartedly in the responsibilities that the Lord God has given us to do, so that when He does return, He would find us faithful. And so there is this continued need for biblical instruction that we might be reminded of the spiritual nature of the kingdom of God, and also then of our responsibility within that spiritual kingdom or that heavenly kingdom. And so after the redemptive work, initially has been accomplished, and after the Lord Jesus Christ has given His instructive work about the kingdom, He ascends into heaven. But what does that mean? And our second point, I want to be very clear at, at the risk of being simplistic, and I'll take the risk of being considered simplistic so that we might be clear. I, my, my goal in the second point that every one of us would leave here knowing very clearly what took place in the ascension. Because I'll still have it sometimes. You'll be talking uh, with someone, a mature member in the church, and and it'll come up, you know, is the Lord Jesus Christ and His human nature, body and soul, in heaven? And they'll kind of pause and you can see their, their theological wheels turning as they perhaps try to recollect former catechism classes or former sermons. And they kind of hesitate and they say, yeah, no, not sure. Well, we want to be absolutely sure, at least insofar as Scripture allows us to be absolutely sure of the location and the presence of our ascended Lord Jesus Christ. So, the what of an ascended Jesus indicates that He was taken up from the disciples. The ascension of Jesus Christ First of all, we want to say it was a real historical event. There was a certain day, 40 days. You notice Luke, again with his attention to detail in verse 3, speaks about being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of heaven. And then verse 9, And now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up. So there was an actual day in which the Lord Jesus Christ went from the locality, the place of the Mount of Olives, according to his human nature now, his glorified body and soul. That glorified human nature, body and soul, moved underneath a supernatural divine power from the locality of the Mount of Olives outside of Jerusalem, into the locality of what Paul calls the third heaven. Now, all sorts of questions exist about the nature of that third heaven, the heaven of heavens, but for our purposes, that is the place where our mediator is according to His human nature. Now, we need to understand also, of course, according to the divine nature of Jesus Christ, He's omnipresent, He's everywhere present in the fullness of His being. And so when we come to a maturity of faith, is Christ with us right now in this space according to His divine nature? Absolutely. According to His divinity and His Spirit. But where is His human nature? His human nature is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And, of course, God the Father is spirit and does not have a right hand like we have a right hand, but that phrase is symbolic of the position of prominence and of absolute authority. And we stress this because we have the best of both worlds as Christians. We have the divine nature always with us, and we have the human nature in heaven and so the Lord Jesus Christ is both with us, but is also in heaven, and in heaven He intercedes on our behalf, so that before the throne of God, there is our mediator, there is our high priest, presenting as it were, uh, the nail scars on His hand, and the mark of the spear on His side, saying in essence, Father, I have satisfied for them, I have acquitted them, I have accomplished the work of redemption. And then the the Son, along with the Spirit, they make intercession on our behalf. Because if we're honest, we don't really know how to pray. I'm not exactly sure how to pray for those surviving family members in Texas. Beyond, Lord, grant comfort. I'm not exactly sure how to pray for global supply chain issues. Beyond, Lord, give me this day our daily bread. I don't know all the details about the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, and so I don't really know how to pray. Beyond, Lord, may there be a measure of peace, and may good be rewarded and evil be punished. But thanks be to God that the Spirit and the Son take those weak, feeble petitions offered in faith, and they then turn and they present them as perfect petitions to the throne of the Father. And so the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, he was taken up from the disciples by way of a spatial movement from one locality to another locality. And that also points out this fact that heaven... And again, Paul speaks about the third heaven. We understand there, there's the heavens that contain the, the stars and the moon, the sun. So I think it's overcast tonight. But I think tomorrow night, boys and girls, if you go out after dark, of course, check with your parents first, but if you go out after dark and if the, the sky is clear, you'll look up. And if you live out in the country, you'll see just a, a brilliant display of stars. That's the heaven also that our God created, but the third heaven, the heaven of heavens, beyond the stars, beyond the moon, beyond the planets, that's a real place also. And in that real place is where our Savior is according to His human nature. I just simply want to emphasize this. What makes heaven heaven and I, and I, I think the, the fad of writing books about going to heaven has, has subdued, at least now, several years ago, it seemed to be the popular fad. Everybody was writing books. They'd have these traumatic experiences, usually associated with some medical uh, trauma, and, and they'd travel, they alleged, into heaven, and they saw all sorts of people and things and phenomena. I read a couple of them, completely unprofitable waste of time. One thing that struck me is there was very, 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 very little mention of Jesus Christ. And now when you read your Bible and when it talks about heaven, for example, the throne room in the book of Revelation, it's all centered upon Jesus Christ. I don't know all of the details about the heaven of heavens, but this I know, and this is all I need to know, is that's where Christ is, and that's where those who believe in Christ will be. And you see, if heaven were not a real place, what hope would there be on earth? Imagine if this earth is all we have. Now, certainly this is our Father's world, and there are beautiful and wonderful things to enjoy in this earth. But if this earth and if life in this earth is all that we have, well, th- th- then I guess I can understand. If, if that's the case, I can understand why... Humanity is characterized by futility. I can understand why mankind is going mad. I can understand why depression rates are on the increase and why suicide numbers are on the increase. I can understand, if there's no heaven, why there's no hope on earth. And so maybe, maybe it's the task of the Christian church. To say to a world that is lost in futility regarding the future of earth, there's a heaven. Now, you might say, well, that doesn't sound very scientific to the 21st century mind. So be it. Man is incurably spiritual. Every single person according to what our forefathers would say, has a spark of divinity that lives within them, has a knowledge, an innate knowledge of God. So coming out of the reminder of the reality of the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ when we meet our neighbors and our coworkers and our extended family members and when we see and hear something of the exasperation of the futility of their worldview, maybe our calling is to say not so much that we know dates and times and seasons, but say we know that there is a heaven. And because we know there is a heaven where Jesus Christ is, we have hope even in the midst of this world. Because that brings us into our third point, the why of an ascended Jesus. Now, why, why did Jesus ascend into heaven? Well, to assume what we call his session. Session, just a, a word that means his rule, his reign. And, and it's my hope that living by faith in the authority of the word of God, that when we wake up and when we lie down and every moment in between and also when we sleep in the middle of the night that we would do so with a measure of peace not based upon our own strength or our own ingenuity or our own wisdom but based upon the fact that when we rise the first moment of the day Christ is ruling and reigning. And when we drift off into sleep Christ is ruling and reigning. And when we spend those six, seven, eight, nine, depending on however many hours of sleep you get when we spend those in a state of slumber. He's not slumbering, but He's eternally vigilant, and He is exercising the authority that has been given unto Him by base of His work as mediator. And so, you notice in, for example, Colossians 1, verse 19 and 20, "'For it pleased the Father that in Him that is in Christ all the fullness should dwell.'" And by Him to reconcile all things to Himself, by Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. And so, maybe the whole world is against us as the Christian church. As we said Sunday, the words of attributed to the life of John Knox, one man with God, always a majority. Having peace with God through Jesus Christ, we can then know with confidence that He is ruling over His kingdom. And there's absolutely not a single square inch to borrow the phrase of Abraham Kuyper that has been repeated probably innumerable times, but still ought to bring comfort to our hearts. There's not a single inch in the universe over which Christ does not say, it's mine, it's underneath my authority. Now, this brings about certain obligations, of course, but it also brings about a certain measure of confidence and of, and of peace to be able to say, this area and that area and all of these nations and all of these kings, and I don't know, maybe it's my own pessimistic spirit. But you know, when you listen to all of the influential, trendy leaders of the day, and as they speak, what I often count as just pompous, empty words, they boast of how they're going to do this, and they boast of how they're going to do that. Just remember that when they make their big speeches, when the world leaders gather together for their summits, the anointed of the Lord laughs. Not in a cruel laughter of mockery, but just what are the plans of man compared to the plans of God? And so, given the reality that Jesus Christ has ascended into heaven to rule over all things, Christian, don't let your hearts be troubled. I don't know what life is going to look like in the United States of America 20 years from now. I don't know what our grandchildren will face or our great-grandchildren will face. Ours is not to know the times, the dates, the seasons. Ours is to know that Jesus Christ is reigning at the right hand of the Father now, and if time tarries in 20 years, where will he be? On the right hand of the Father, ruling over all things, and if 50 years unfolds, where will he be? On the right hand of the Father, and if hundreds of years, thousands of years of human history are yet to be unfolded, every single day of every single month of every single year will be underneath the authority of the ascended Jesus Christ. But notice that when He leaves, it guarantees His return. And I want to end uh, by looking at verse eleven, and the instruction that the angels give, you can you can see the picture in your mind, can't you? As Luke paints it, here the the risen Christ ascends, in the face of his faithful yet ignorant disciples, and and they're all standing around, uh, like people will do when they are faced with some phenomenon, and they're they're gazing up into heaven. And the angels come and say, "Why do you stand gazing up into heaven?" This same Jesus, verse eleven who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. In like manner, suddenly, visibly, triumphantly, Jesus Christ will reappear at the conclusion or the culmination of human history. Uh, This much is quite clear also, Jesus himself tells us in Matthew 24, 29 and following, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth shall mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So you can think also of those wonderfully comforting words that Jesus Christ gave to His disciples when He says that He goes to prepare a place. So on the one hand, you can say that Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over all things, but in His rule and in His reign, He's also preparing. He's preparing heaven. He's preparing mansions, not literal mansions far beyond the glory of literal mansions. He's preparing a mansion, and Jesus then says to us, also again tonight through Acts 1, verse 11, if I go away, I will come again, so that you may be with me. I don't know what tomorrow holds, but that promise That promise is sure, and that promise is certain, so that you, a sinner, saved by grace, may be with me, the risen, ascended Lord Jesus Christ, and not just for a brief time, but for all of eternity. And so tonight, you can turn on your news and you can read the reports and you can say, what in the world is going on? But you can also open your Bibles and you can say, ours is not to know the times, dates, and the seasons. But I know that Christ is on the right hand of the Father and all things are well. With me, with my soul, and with his rule and with his reign. Amen.